This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Brooke Nindorf with you. Thanks very much for your company today on The Country Hour. Coming up, mutton supply has surged by almost 80% year on year and the sale yard swell is causing prices to plunge. The previous two seasons have been so favourable that producers and buyers are able to be a bit more picky. So we are seeing some farmers selecting which ones, which older sheep they want to keep to retain for breeding. And then we're also seeing that at the other end of the market where those, you know, older sheep and, and even lambs coming through that are of premium quality are fetching premium prices. So we are seeing that on the other end of the supply chain as well. We'll have more on that story shortly. Plus, we're going to check in with the Adelaide Central Markets about what is coming into season as we head into February. But first today, the approach to tackling wild dogs and foxes in the Flinders Ranges is looking a little differently. For the first time in three decades, fox baits have been swapped for dog baits in a new flagship program with the Department for Primary Industries and the Department for Environment and Water. Perza's Wild Dog Coordinator, Heather Miller, explains the reasoning behind the team up and the change of bait. The collaboration on working with Bounce Back just was a natural progression into providing them with dog strength baits instead of the usual fox strength baits that they use. So as you said, the collaboration has naturally progressed to that. What benefits do you see working together? Well, certainly uh, for both sides, there's certainly a a cost benefit and cost efficiency benefit to working together. But working with parks and across the teams, utilising both staff, we, when we have a big bait-making day, parks will supply us with some of their staff and the SA Aradlands board do the same as well. So developing those collaborations between all of these government organisations is uh, it's really good efficiency and, and it's good for the people out there to see that um, these government organisations are all working together to support each other. As you mentioned, there's been a change in bait. For the first time in 30 years, fox baits have been substituted for dog baits. What's the reasoning behind the change? Through the areas where, or not, not all of the areas, but um, a lot of the areas where a bounce back occurs and where they do their fox baiting, there are dogs going through those areas. Some are living in the areas and some are traversing through. So the reason for replacing the baits is that if a dog picks up a fox strength bait, it will deliver a, um, a sublethal dose to that dog. And so that means that the dog um, will you know, just get really sick and get a stomachache and then won't pick up a bait again. So by replacing the fox baits with the dog strength baits, the dog baits will kill a fox as well. So it just gives uh, landscape control of um, two feral animals. Why was the substitute not done earlier? I suppose it's one of those things that we talked about it and um, we'd said to Parks, uh, is it something that you would consider? This was quite some time ago. Um, but now, as time has gone by and more funding has been put into wild dog control, with this funding that we have, have for The next four years, we have state and federal government funding. And so we've said to them, well, what if we supply the dog strength baits um, and replace your fox baits? So it's certainly a cost efficiency on 
their behalf and it's a cost efficiency on our behalf too because we're working together through the costs. We're supplying the baits but they still do all of the organising. They use their own plane and that sort of thing. So this is the first year that we've actually just got together and made it happen. If successful, will this be a permanent change to the way baiting will be done in the north and how long will it take to be able to identify that success? Well, the parks, um, you know, Department of Environment and the Bounce Back program have a large monitoring program that's been going on you know, ever since the program started. So they'll continue their monitoring and they will be seeing if there's any difference with using dog strength baits. I can't say whether or not um, it will continue forever into the future, but it certainly if they, with the success of the first trial, um, we will be able to work with Department of Environment again and introduce it into some other areas as well if they're keen. So that's what we're looking forward to. But also, um, as far as the, the monitoring goes, from people in the area when wild dog baiting is done, they do notice that there's, um, the, you know, the dog baits will get rid of the foxes as well. And so with both of those animals removed, there is an increase in biodiversity. So they're seeing, you know, increases in echidnas, for example. So the landholders see the, you know, visual evidence in um, the success of baiting, of these wild dog baiting programs. So in a sense, it's very much two birds, or in this case, two dogs, one stone. Yes, that's right. It is. It's um, it is a dual purpose. And generally speaking, how are the dog numbers and fox numbers tracking? The dog numbers over the years are certainly reducing. So when the dog numbers were really high in 2017-18, in the midst of the drought, the dog numbers have certainly decreased since then. But it's time to keep our foot on the accelerator because if we take it off now, those numbers with these really good seasons that we've been having for the last couple of years, the dog numbers are going to increase. That's inevitable. And if we don't keep our foot down on the accelerator and keep all of these control measures happening, those numbers will build up again and we'll be back to where we were in 2017-18, which would be terrible. So at the moment, the, the numbers are probably the lowest that have been seen in many years, which is great news for livestock producers. And certainly wherever people do any dog baiting, they're not seeing any foxes either. So there is that dual purpose Purses Wild Dog Coordinator Heather Miller speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. Now, respected livestock analyst Simon Quilty believes Meat and Livestock Australia has grossly overstated the size of the nation's cattle herd by about 3 million head. MLA came out last week projecting Australia's cattle herd would hit almost 29 million head this year, making it the biggest herd size in almost a decade. But Simon Quilty believes the numbers don't make sense and that MLA's mistake will be costly. I find them deeply concerning simply because I don't believe them. They have overstated the size of the Australian herd by 3 million head per year over the next three years. And simply, those animals do not exist. What makes you say that? Well, first of all, you start with the starting point of their forecast, which was 2022. And we have hard numbers saying for that period that the 2022 numbers in terms of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, saw a 0.13% decline. The MLA numbers lay claim to a 6% increase. So right from the get-go, the numbers are wrong and they've got 
the MLA numbers, they've got it 27.5 million. But in reality, they should be probably closer to 25 and a half million. So let's start at the right starting point to begin with before even trying to forecast the following three years. And why are you more confident in the ABS numbers than MLA's numbers? Because they're hard numbers. ABS do this survey every five years. We have the census in which 125,000 farmers are surveyed. And every in-between years, we have a 25,000 head survey across Australia. So I'm very confident the ABS numbers are right. And in terms of state by state, where they have the levels, they make perfect sense to me, knowing full well the female kill ratios that are going on and the changes in land use that are dramatically happening across Australia. You believe this forecast by MLA and the slaughter numbers at the moment don't kind of add up. Can you explain that to us? So when you have a herd of a certain size, it lends itself to a certain ratio of numbers to be killed. Obviously, the bigger the herd, the bigger the numbers to be killed. The strange thing is about these forecasts is that their slaughter rate, I agree with, but that comes from a much lower herd, a 3 million less lower herd. So just simple ratios. This is basic arithmetic. And those slaughter ratios they have are too low. They do not reflect anywhere near what the slaughter ratio should be with such a large herd, in particular in 2025 at 29.5 million. And Matt, this is my concern that it relays to the rest of the world the wrong information about Australia. It would imply to our buyers around the world that there is a wall of meat coming out of Australia, and that is not true. It will also give the wrong message to our farmers in Australia that there is going to be an avalanche of cattle once the conditions turn dry, which is very much likely this year. And once again, that is not true. In both instances, we are relaying as a country the wrong information internally and externally. I spoke to another analyst who felt that with the female slaughter ratio sitting at 43%, he felt that MLA's numbers could be feasible. What do you think of that? I think that's grossly inaccurate. In actual fact, when you look at Queensland itself, Queensland is the engine room of Australia's beef industry. And we've seen that now for the second year in a row, its rate of rebuild has actually gone down. So it was at 2.1% in the previous year's figures. And in 2022, it fell to 2%. And there are a myriad of reasons why you might say the engine room of Australia, Queensland, is spluttering. By that, I mean it is desperately trying to get going, but it can't. The main reason is because in 2020, there was enormous exodus of cattle out of Queensland into New South Wales. As New South Wales tried to rebuild by begging and borrowing and stealing every animal around this country to try and quickly rebuild after the devastating drought of 2018 and 19. So the first thing is that Queensland had an exodus of cattle in 2020, and a lot of it mainly were females. Secondly, 
a lot of regional marginal areas of New South Wales today are being taken over by sheep and goats. Exclusion fencing's played a crucial role, and the 2022 figures show a 35% increase in sheep numbers in Queensland alone, Matt. So there are numerous reasons why we've seen Queensland really slow down in its rebuild. The last reason is in 2020, 4 million hectares in Queensland alone went out of grazing. And you touched on it a bit earlier, but at the end of the day, if MLA's forecast was for 26 million head instead of closer to 29 million head, why would that matter? Because it's the messages we relay to people making decisions. So our buyers in Japan, Korea, China, America, they all look at these numbers. And the first thing they would do when they see 29 to 29 and a half million head herd is believe that that will follow with an enormous amount of beef. And they're true in thinking that because we saw that back in 2013, 14 and 15, where as a country, we slaughtered anywhere between nine to almost 10 million head in that period. But in reality, we're not going to even get close to that. We're going to slaughter probably about seven and a quarter million head. So there is a two million head difference just in slaughterings alone. But that would tell the world to stop buying forward. And that is crucial for long-fed programs, for Wagyu producers, for Angus producers, animals that are on long-fed programs. The processes require the ability to sell forward to offset risk. And that is going to be taken away from them because our buyers will see it's better to buy hand to mouth. It's better not to go out and buy too much in front because things are going to get cheaper. That's the message they're giving around the world. Simon Quilty from Global Agritrends speaking to Matt Brand. Brooke Nindorf with you. It's 19 minutes past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, mutton supply has surged by almost 80% year on year and the sale yard swell is causing prices to plunge. For the first time since 2016, the mutton prices have dropped below $3 a kilogram for carcass weight. And Meat and Livestock Australia market information analyst Jenny Lim explains more about the market. The previous two seasons have been so favourable that producers and buyers are able to be a bit more picky. So we are seeing some farmers selecting which ones, which older sheep they want to keep to retain for breeding. And then we're also seeing that at the other end of the market where those, you know, older sheep and, and even lambs coming through that are of premium quality are fetching premium prices. So we are seeing that on the other end of the supply chain as well. With such a huge surge in supply, over 160,000 ewes already offered across Australian sale yards for January. So I guess how is that huge surge in supply impacting the price of mutton? Well, we have seen um, the mutton come off since probably middle of last year where it hit some some really high prices um, as people were looking for those breeding ewes to increase their flocks. Just because of the supply and, and the large supply that's come onto the market, we, we generally would see some pricing pressure being um, put on. So we can see that in the mutton indicator where it has come right back for the beginning of this year. Um, it is normal that indicators do come back moving towards Christmas and throughout the beginning of the year, but it has come back significantly because of that large increase in supply. 
And so with it sitting at below $3 a kilo, I think it, that's for the first time since 2016. So quite a, quite a drop that people haven't seen mutton prices that low for quite some time. Yeah, I think it's more of a people are willing to sift through because there is that supply available to them. They're able to pick and choose which ones they want to pick and which ones they want to pay premium for. So that does um, come into the indicators and, and we we may see some recovery, but um, it may, may continue as we expect the mutton supply to continue to be high for the rest of the year. And is there any particular sale yards that, has, that you've noted that are having a high throughput of sheep at the moment? Yeah, so particularly in New South Wales, we've seen a huge increase um, year on year, 94% just in the month of January, um, increase in sheep on the market um, then. And that is their flock going through that mature period and they're, they're coming to age now. So now they're hitting that market. We are seeing them come through the sale yards. So um, New South Wales started a little bit earlier than the rest of uh, rest of the states in terms of their rebuild. So um, it, it only makes sense that we see them there first. There isn't a huge market for mutton domestically in Australia. So is most of uh, the mutton out of Australia still going into export markets? Yes, most of our mutton is exported. There's a huge market for it in China. And um, since China's, uh, they used to have, uh, all through COVID, had some logistical issues, but that has been rectified last year. And so we are seeing China um, take a lot of that mutton. But the mutton exports have remained quite steady across the last couple of years. So um, we're seeing quite consistent export into into the international market. And, you know, China being one of our large largest markets and then the US also picking up quite a lot of it. You know, there's plenty plenty of demand from those countries. So is it still well over 90% of Australian mutton is exported? Yeah, absolutely. Most of it is exported. So we, we obviously see a little bit less, um, well, less in the lambs between 2021 and 2022, only 35% of our lambs were exported. So um, we do see majority of our mutton go overseas. And as is supply in the local sale yards in Australia increases, will there be an issue in finding a home for it? Will that, that export market still be able to soak up more of that supply? I think there's still plenty of demand on the international market. Um, you know, China still has a protein deficit that they're looking to fill and they are they they really like the mutton as as a cut. So um I think we'll still see plenty of plenty of demand for the mutton as we increase our supply and pr- processors are clearly able to maintain production levels as we've seen last year even through you know stoppages and and covid shutdowns and whatever we still saw a consistent supply of lamb and mutton coming through the processing sector and do you think that drop in the price will deter producers from selling their mutton or it'll just be a case of time to go they've got too many numbers and they will just sell for what what they can get I think it'll be interesting to see how the market reacts. We did see in our last um, sheep producer intention survey that many most producers are still looking to increase their flocks. I think due to the numbers that are available, they're able to pick which ones they want to breed and still be able to do that increase. So it'll be more uh, a decision from the producer as to which ones they want to hold on to. Meat and Livestock Australia market information analyst Jenny Lim speaking to Cara Jeffrey. Brooke Nindorf with you today for the country out here in Port Lincoln, and it is a, a beautiful day here. Looking out uh, to the uh, looking out the studio window, it is looking quite nice. But to find out what's happening around the rest of the state, we're joined by Vince Rollins at the Bureau of Meteorology. Good afternoon, Vince. Hello, Brooke. What's it looking like around the state? 
Yeah, looking pretty good at the moment. Not much cloud around. A little bit up in the far northeast and a little bit around the southeast coast, but uh, elsewhere looking, uh, yeah, looking fine. Not much. Well, yeah, basically sunny conditions and yeah, temperatures are slowly on the rise as well, Brooke. But uh, that's all due to a, a ridge of high pressure that's just sitting over the south of the state at the moment. And that's uh, extending from a high that's southwest of WA. So over the next uh, couple of days, that high is going to slowly move eastwards. We'll probably remain in pretty stable conditions uh, across most parts of the state for the next uh, four or five days until we see a bit of a weak trough just starting to move across the, the far west on Thursday and then uh, across the remainder of the state uh, pretty much on Friday and early Saturday morning. So we will eventually see the winds uh, swing round from uh, the east-southeast, where they are at the present, just going a little bit more northeasterly. It does start to pick the temperature up in the western parts of the state, so we are looking at some very hot conditions extending over the west over the next couple of days, and we do have a low-intensity heat wave for that region, uh, and then slowly that uh, those very hot temperatures just start to extend a little bit further east, but remaining over the northern parts of the state, so where we will see some very hot conditions across most of the north as we head towards the weekend. But over the next uh, few days, not a lot happening weather-wise. Um, we do have a bit of a risk of some uh, isolated showers and thunderstorms up in the far northeast of the state today. That continues tomorrow. May um, be a risk of some relatively good falls up through that uh, far northeast, just near the Queensland border during tomorrow. There's a fair bit of moisture coming down from uh, from southwest Queensland, so not uh, expecting any warnings at this stage, but certainly there is a risk of some some reasonable falls up through that region during Tuesday and Wednesday, and then it all clears out on Thursday to uh, to find conditions right right throughout the state uh, for the remainder of the forecast period. Now, there is a slight risk of uh, <coughs> some shower activity over parts of Air Peninsula on Wednesday. Look, it's not on the forecast at the moment, but there's a bit of an upper low um, moving over that region. So at this stage, it's too, too low a risk of uh, putting it on the forecast, but just a bit of a watch point. And then similar um, on Saturday, just as this trough moves through, there's a, a slight risk of some activity around southern coasts and, and ranges as we get that southerly change coming through. So, yeah, apart from that and those thunderstorms up in the, the northeast, yeah, it's looking uh, pretty dry across the state. And as I said, looking at uh, temperatures uh, slowly rising over the next couple of days and some very hot conditions in the north and west. But once that trough goes through, uh, Thursday, Friday, winds uh, behind it will swing back round to the southwest and uh, we will see cooler conditions extending over parts of the west and, and southern parts of the state as well before we see that next high pressure system uh, beginning to move across from the west behind this trough. So yeah, patterns moving through pretty regularly. Um, yeah, with these highs just uh, tending to just move through a bit of a trough uh, between them. So, yeah, not much has changed as, as far as that pattern goes uh, for this week as well. Now, rainfall-wise, obviously not much uh, happening there, but uh, there are <coughs> uh, the possibility of seeing some uh, falls up in that far northeastern corner generally around the sort of 2 to 10 millimetres, but there could be some isolated activity up there getting up to about 30 millimetres. So that's really the only rainfall that we are expecting across the state at this stage, Brooke.
Thanks very much for your time today, Vince. No worries. Vince Rowlands at the Bureau of Meteorology with all the latest with the weather details right across the state. Let's have a look at the uh, western inlands for tomorrow. For the upper western, a sunny morning with the chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the afternoon and early evening. Wind southeastly, 20 to 30 kilometres per hour, with overnight temperatures falling to between 19 and 22, with daytime temperatures reaching the mid to high 30s. For the lower western, sunny and uh, wind southeastly, 15 to 25 kilometres per hour, becoming light in the late evening. Overnight temperatures falling to between 14 and 18, with daytime temperatures reaching the low to mid 30s. Plenty more to come on the country, including we're going to take a look at a new $36.5 million upgrade uh, with an Armand Co-op headquarters in uh, Renmark. So make sure you stay tuned for that, uh, plus plenty more. Brooke Nindorf with you. Thanks very much for your company. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Brooke Nindorf. Brooke Nindorf. Hello, thanks very much for your company on this Monday. Coming up over the next half an hour, the cost of eggs is going up. Uh, well, I guess it's similar costs that are accrued across all small businesses at the moment, more particularly for me within agriculture itself. But the, we've essentially seen uh, increases across the board in all facets of egg production. So what are you seeing when it comes to the cost of eggs? We're going to hear more on that story very shortly, but are you seeing a lack of supply of maybe eggs at, uh, at this local supermarket or is your cafe charging you more when you go and uh, order breakfast? Send me a text on 0467 We'd love to see what you're hearing when it comes to purchasing eggs as the cost of uh, you know, input costs, etc. Are, are really starting to add uh, to fall onto the egg industry as well. Before that, let's find out what's happening in the newsroom. We're joined by Matt Common. Good afternoon, Matt. Hello, Brooke. In the news this afternoon, a search is underway in the far north for a missing man. The alarm was raised on Sunday when a man was reported missing after a regular welfare check at a large cattle station near Marla. Nine SES personnel will be deployed to the search along with the local police and Polair. SA Health nurses and midwives are getting a 3% pay increase each year for the next three years. Under a new enterprise bargaining agreement, the state's 21,000 nurses and midwives will receive the pay boost, plus two payments of $1,500. And a number of stairs and ramps to beaches between West Beach and Henley Beach have been closed. The Chief Executive of the City of Charles Sturt, Paul Sutton, says some of the stairs and ramps have a large drop-off at the end because there's not as much sand there as usual, making them unsafe. More news at one o'clock. Thanks very much, Matt. Matt Coleman in the newsroom. Now, members of an arm and co-op hope that a $36.5 million upgrade to its Riverland headquarters will improve their financial returns. Almond Co, Co, which takes supply from more than 80% of the country's almond growers, has opened the processing facility and warehouse in time for this year's harvest. The co-op's managing director, Brenton Woolstone, told Eliza Burlage that the upgrade will cater to the growing needs of the industry. Yeah, well, it's uh, just really catering, catering for their future production needs. Um, so there's been a lot of planning over the last number of years in capturing uh, planning and production data So for our members, and that helps us uh, build capacity for, for their requirements for the future years. So um, Remark headquarters here, we've added high-capacity blanching value-add facilities. Now we've sort of built a, 
28,000 bin capacity warehouse to, to make sure we're, we're keeping the almonds stored in the right conditions. What will the expansion mean for the region as well? Well, it creates more employment and probably for the whole project over the last couple of years for our raw material warehouse, which was just completed recently, and our value-add uh, facility. Yes, we've had a lot of uh, local labour and contractors who've been excellent uh, throughout the whole process. So I think you know, getting money, changing around hands in the in the community is super important. Employment in the area is also very important to make sure everything sort of continues to work and the area uh, can continue to be prosperous. There's just so many uses for almonds. You mentioned in your speech um, some of the different things that the um, expansion will allow you to do with almonds. Would you mind running through some of that? Yeah, well, it's such a great ingredient for one. Apart from, you know, almonds are probably traditionally thought about just for snacking. But, yeah, in most supermarkets, you find almonds in, in almost every aisle, whether it's salty snacks, uh, health food, baking, cooking, uh, confectionery, biscuits, <laughs> breakfast cereals, health bars... So yes, yeah, a very diverse product, and I think that's what's great about almonds is that you can use all different sort of grades and sizes and varieties, and actually convert it into a a, a product for a particular purpose and a particular segment. So um, yeah, we've got a very diverse customer base, uh, and that customer base is a bit of a global uh, phenomenon. So we sort of partner up with customers that use different different things for almonds, where it's you know five percent in a breakfast cereal or. 100% for snacking. And um, yeah, it was amazing to have a look at some of the, the machinery here that's come from over in Spain and, and that will allow you to deliver so many of those uh, products. One of those that was mentioned was the um, blanched almond flour is something that's really growing. It was something I hadn't heard about. Yeah, yeah well, the home cooks apparently driving it. I guess it's the whole gluten-free thing. So um, yeah, the blanched almond flour has been a strong product for a number of years. And I guess the start of COVID, um, People look for pantry-ready, pantry-stable types of foods, and almond certainly fits into that category. So we did see uh, a lot more people uh, buying almonds to store in their pantries and hopefully snack on. And more importantly, what we have seen to continue is the use of almonds in baking and cooking at home. We're looking ahead to harvest now. Any idea when that might be starting? Yeah, so we're in the last month of our 2022 season. So Armico runs a, a pool arrangement. So. Uh, it's the last uh, month to finish off the 2022 pool before we close the books on that. And from the 1st of March, we'll be into the 2023 crop. And you're right, the season, because of the mild weather conditions, is probably running about two weeks late. And I think with most produce, that's about the you know, similar sort of story. So we have got some earlier almond varieties now, which are uh, coming into more production. So we'll start off on those varieties. And our main variety called Nonpareil, uh, which is almost 50% of the almond crop, is about running about two weeks late. So it looks like that most things will probably come on in a pretty short, same sort of period of time. So, yeah, we're ready for new harvest. Um, our hulling and shelling facilities in, in Lurup in South Australia and Griffith in New South Wales are ready to roll when, when we start getting some deliveries. Almond Co General Manager Brenton Woolston. Lyrup almond grower Simon Voss says he's excited about the opportunities to make more out of his crop. Look, the thing that stood out to me most is, as a grower, you're trying to produce the best product you can, uh, but this new facility will make use of the product that perhaps isn't the best that we can grow. So it's a value-adding line for 
the type of almonds that you wouldn't necessarily see in Woolworths on the shelves. So from a value adding point of view, the thing that stood out for me is the fact that every single piece of every almond can be used. There's no wastage whatsoever. Even the skin of the almond, they're now looking at using. So it's a fantastic facility to make the most use of all the product that we grow. And the, the automation is the other thing. Like they've got the robots here that stack all the pallets and do all the work. I, I didn't ask how many staff they would need, but it, it's not a huge amount. The effort has been put into automation. It's a really an amazing processing line. Lirup Almond Grower Simon Vores speaking with Eliza Burlage. Let's head to the Adelaide Central Market now to find out what uh, is in season at the moment. We're joined by Penny Reedy, Marketing Communications and Business Development Manager at the market. Good afternoon, Penny. Hi, welcome from the South Australian Produce Market. Great <laughs> to speak to you again. Fantastic. What? Uh, well, let's have a look at fruit first. What's What's happening with fruit? Well, it's a very special time of year because (laughs) (laughs) Valentine's Day is coming up and I love that we still have Adelaide Hills grown strawberries still in season. The people from Sheravlo Orchards have actually packaged up a love heart shaped um, strawberry package that says I love you very much on them and I think that is awesome marketing. They've done a great job there (laughs) and good to see that Adelaide Hills strawberries are still in really good supply and tasting fantastic. I might have to uh, get, get, you know, find out how to send myself one of those, uh, Penny. Absolutely. <laughs> Head to your local fruit and veg store. They might even do deliveries. It would be great if they were, I think. Um, now, the other exciting thing that's come into the markets the other week is um, the first crop of Riverland new season apples are arriving. So we've actually got royal galas coming in from, um, from the Riverland, which is exciting to see a new season of apples coming through. And that means that the Adelaide Hills season of apples is not far away. So we're really looking forward to that. Are you seeing much uh, hailstorm damage on, on the apples and, and even the pears that are coming through? Yeah, we have started to see a little bit. So we won't know the full extent of it until the season gets into its peak. But early um, indications are that there probably will be a little bit of hailstorm damage on our apples and pears this season. So we ask everyone to be really kind to our growers and pick that imperfect fruit. It still tastes fantastic, but it just doesn't look as perfect as sometimes we as consumers want it. Well, let's go from apples to melons and uh, what are they tasting like at the moment? They're tasting really good and again from the Riverland, the Riverland's our really key supply area at the moment so we've got really great tasting rock melons and watermelons that are arriving from the Riverland so get in and grab some of them I have seen some great prices in some of your local fruit and vegetables so doing, doing some specials for watermelons there's been lots and lots of them coming through the markets here so you should find good price on them really good for hydration and um, good for your skin good for if you're uh, watching your weight they're a really nice snack although half a rock melon with a scoop of ice cream on it is a really nice after dinner snack as well <laughs> <laughs> now penny ready uh, pineapples they're not grown here in sa but we've been hearing a lot lately about how there is a, a large supply of, of pineapples around the country and and people are being encouraged to get out there and buy them 
Yeah, definitely. And what we're actually going to see is quite small pineapples. So I know pineapples can be difficult to cut up and it's a bit of a barrier for people buying them because they're like, oh, I've got them cut up to cut them up. They are going to be small, but our growers really are going to need you to get on, on board of that. So if you're doing Friday night burgers, chuck a pineapple on your burger, put some on the barbecue and have it for dessert. Um, you'll see really sharp prices on them because we'll have a really oversupply of them. Let's head to vegetables now, Penny. What's being seen there? And once again, the Riverland's coming through for our vegetables. Sweet corn is tasting absolutely fantastic at the moment and we're getting really good supply from the Riverland. The other thing I'm seeing is a lot of those glasshouse lines coming through from the Virginia, the Northern Adelaide Plains region. So eggplants are really good supply. You'll find really sharp prices on them. And they're really versatile. You can chuck them on the barbecue. You can use them for lasagna. There's plenty of options for eggplant. Eggplant parmigiana might absolute favourite um, and it's also sourcing season so those um, glass houses are giving us some great tomatoes at the moment and so for anyone that wants to be doing sourcing now is a great time to pick up a box of sourcing tomatoes and then you can add it to your eggplant lasagna absolutely <laughs> homemade sauce with the eggplant you're getting right on board it's great and just uh, <laughs> just finally pay capsicums now the bullhorn cap is that what we would normally think of when we, we see a capsicum no, so the bullhorn caps are actually um, a different shape. They're more a pepper-type shape. They can actually grow up to 20 centimetres in length. So they come in a number of varieties. When they go to full um, harvest, they're red, but they can also be eaten green as well. And I was talking to the grower about them this week because they look fantastic, and he said that they're really good for roasting. So if you're after roasting some capsicums, look for the bullhorn variety, but do be careful because they come in a sweet and a hot variety. You do not want to get those two mixed up. <laughs> <laughs> and Penny, we heard last week about um, uh, about the, the mushrooms set up at Elizabeth. Have you had uh, lots of inquiries about mushrooms since uh, since that? Yeah, I was fortunate enough to go out to that um, tour of the facility out there at the Holden site. It's an amazing setup that they're going to have there once they get into full production, talking about 20,000 tonne a year of exotic mushrooms. And it's a really gap in the market. We are fantastic at growing button mushrooms, and everyone loves button mushrooms, and we have some really great growing farms here in South Australia already for that variety. But to see exotic mushrooms being grown in South Australia will really um, put a gap in that market because at the moment we have to import a lot of them from Korea. So we're really excited to see how that goes. And I think there's going to have to be some education on people. I think we're a little bit scared, a little bit nervous as home cooks to cook exotic mushrooms. But Callum Hahn, our brand ambassador, was out there cooking them up and he assures me that you can cook them just like you do your button mushrooms. Well, it sounds good. I have to uh, learn how to do that. Penny Reedy, thanks very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. That was Penny Reedy, Marketing, Communications and Business Development Manager at the Adelaide Produce Market. Now let's go to something that's uh, probably not quite as tasty and that's carp. And thousands of carp have been spotted swarming around parts of the Menindee Lakes with widespread flooding across the state creating ideal breeding conditions. West Darling Fishing Club President Robert Bosch spoke to Andrew Schmidt about the pests. It could be a lot of things, Andrew. It's it's a lot of, I think it's just overbreeding, mate. That's all, and just a heap of them are dying off. I'm going to say, Boshy, the numbers you're seeing, are they 
you know, the largest numbers of dead carp you've seen in the system in your time? No, no, no. I've seen a lot worse than that, a hell of a lot worse than that, especially when there was blue-green algae around and things like that. At the moment, there's a little bit of black water in the, in the river, but not much at all. And we've got a black water event coming down the river between Blouth and Tilper, apparently. Are you seeing any other dead fish, any other species? Probably bony brim in amongst them, that's about it. But uh, in front of the weirs the other day, there was a lot of a lot of carp, like, and they get in those massive schools like they do, where there's a bit of fresh water or a bit of oxygen in the water. I think they just over-exploit over themselves and some of them part, die off, mate, that's all. And from what I've been told by the experts, we're going to see a lot more of them too as the water recedes. Would you say you're seeing hundreds of dead carp or thousands? No, no, no. Maybe maybe hundreds, mate, at the moment. Like only around the main weir and in front of the lookout and places like that where there was a lot of carp. But, and down in front of Copia on the beach sometimes you might find a few carp, but they're only um, tens or twenties, you know. Apparently as this water recedes, mate, we are going to see a hell of a lot more of them. Because, see, you've got, to, you've got to understand the DNA of native, our native fish compared to these um, European carp. The moment the water starts dropping off, all our native fish go back into the river, back into deep water. That, that's in their cycle. That, that's built in their genes. But the European carp, they love to live in this sort of semi-warm water with a bit of moss and mud and stuff around that they can filter through their system to get all the microorganisms out of the mud and everything. And that's what makes them a pest because they keep the water muddied up to, you know, fairly turbid. But they, they stay out in that shallow water and they get trapped out there. In time, as this water recedes, we're going to see a lot of carp trapped outside the river. It's going to be a good thing in a way because they'll die in their thousands. And it'll be a bit smelly for a while, but dead fish, but at least they'll die out there and nobody will be too cared about it. Charlie carp don't want them because they're over uh, over flushed at the moment with carp juice and everything for making their fertilisers and that, and they just don't need the carp that we've got out here. You don't think there'd be too many people crying buckets of tears then with all the dead carp? I don't think so, mate, no. I don't think so. Matter of fact, if, if some people um, put their thinking caps on, they could probably harvest all these dead carp and bury them in around their fruit trees and wherever on their blocks and... They make a beautiful fertiliser. Good idea on that one. That was West Darling Fishing Club President Robert Bosch speaking to Andrew Schmidt. Now, there are many creative ways to put old shopping bags to use and a flower farm in the Limestone Coast has been repurposing the paper Woolies bags as no-till flower beds. The practice has proved highly successful not only as a no-till method but it's also been helping to combat weeds. The local community has been supporting the farm, delivering enough paper bags to supply the flower farm for months. Co-owner and operator of Stafari Flowers, Stephanie Jager, says the new beds were largely unplanned. We were in a hurry to get beds in and we decided to give this no-till flower bed thing a go. I had some Woolworths bags stacked up in my house because I always thought I'd do something with them. So we were, wanted to put down like a cardboard of some sort underneath. So I started...
started with the, the Woolworths bags and then we had some cardboard around as well. So we started using that and then making the garden bed on top of it. So we did it in November for the first time. It worked really well. So this time around when we want to make some new garden beds again for our flowers that had to go in this time, uh, we thought we'd try the same thing because it seems to be working. Right. So it wasn't necessarily that you were looking for a no-till method. It was just kind of a quick method that would work. Because we, in the two years we've been flower farming, we've discovered a lot of things that work and a, and a few more that didn't work. And our first garden beds, we actually ploughed and, you know, went from like the traditional, I suppose, the, the common farming method of ploughing and preparing the ground. But we really struggle with wheat. And as the business has grown, as the, the flower farm has sort of gotten bigger, we've discovered that physically because it's just the two of us. It's Lisa Marie my business partner, myself, and we do all the work. So we've just discovered that it's a really manual, hard-laboring method. Um, We have been listening to a lot of podcasts and um, online courses about flower farming. And there are a few farmers, um, not necessarily that we know of in Australia, but in America, who does the no-till method. So you sort of hear little bits and pieces about it as you listen to other podcasts and things. So we sort of knew it was some people were doing it, but we didn't really know how it would work and how we would actually implement it. So we sort of had it in the back of our heads and and also from a point of view of not being so physically labor intensive, we thought that this might be the way to go. And when we did it last year, it worked amazing. So it's been the most successful method you've trialed so far? Yes. Yes, absolutely. From a from a weeding point of view, which is a big a big thing in the flower farming business, we've just yeah the weeds have been minimal. They've been manageable for us. Whereas previously, we've had garden beds where the weeds, like as soon as the flowers were sort of over and we were meant to pull it out and start a new bed, the weeds had taken over. That we we just felt like oh goodness, now we have to get rid of the weeds first, then we can prepare the garden bed, and it just made gave us an extra process. So what we're doing now is we're actually we're creating, we put down the cardboard or the Woolworths bags. They work great. And we, we people have been absolutely amazing getting bags to us. It's just, yeah, we've got an awesome community just all wanting to help. So we put them down and then we actually put a good compost soil on top of it. And we actually build up the bed from there. So next time when we plant in that garden bed, we literally just lift the weed matting and we put an extra layer of soil and then we put that down. Whereas previously, you know, even with the wheat matting on top, the, the weeds were just getting through and holding the plants back. Whereas now with this method, we've just been able to keep the weeds under control so, so much better. And with this new method, one of the benefits, of course, is that it's no-till. Is that an important part of your business, trying to be environmentally friendly? It is. It is, it is a thing for us. And we, we constantly, when we do new things, we're constantly thinking how we can work with the environment rather than fighting it, like, you know, with the weeds and, and just with what we've got, like our property, the soil is not the best quality soil. So we really want to improve the soil as well because we realise that that's going to be better overall for our gardens, for our flowers, but also for, you know, beneficial bugs and like the whole system, the whole ecosystem would work better. Stephanie Jagger from Stafari Flowers in the southeast, speaking with Elsie Adamo. It's coming up to eight minutes to one. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Now, Australia is experiencing a national egg shortage. Prices prices are rising and supermarket stocks are patchy. I'd love to hear from you. Are you noticing this? Send me a text on 0467 922891. Some cafes are reportedly serving breakfast with one egg instead of two. Some are charging extra for scrambled as it takes at least three eggs and some extra ingredients like your cream and your butter. So how are egg producers managing these difficult times and what's contributing to these rising costs and shortages? Liam Brokenshaw is the owner and egg producer for the Splendid Egg based Egg Splendid Egg based in Mount Gambia, and is speaking here with Beck Chave. Uh, well, I guess it's similar costs that are accrued across all small businesses at the moment, but more particularly for me within agriculture itself. But the, we've essentially seen uh, increases across the board in all facets of egg production. So you know, ranging from an increase in cost of hens that we purchase at 16 weeks from our, uh, our grower uh, and then an increase in feed costs. There's a natural increase in wages that happens annually and uh, affects everybody as well. So transport and freight costs, labour costs. So they all feed into, I guess, an increase in cost overall. So that's where we're seeing the increases. And are you having to pass that, that increase in costs on to the consumers at the moment? Have you had to raise your prices? We had a price rise at the end of, or the beginning of uh, the last financial year, so back in 1st of July, and it's something that we look at annually. And as far as having to pass on that cost to the end consumer, that's no different than any other business, small business out there that is in the same boat of, you know, of buying goods and then having to, you know, pass those costs on to run a, a profitable business. So... It's, it's, the agriculture sector, the egg business is not unlike any other small business. It, it, it purchases things to create a product. And that product is, you know, is then put out into the marketplace and then you know, is purchased. So uh, each company you know, would like to obviously be a profitable business. So it's just like any other small business that's out there, whether it's a retail store on the, you know, or a cafe or a restaurant, everybody's doing their bit to to run their small businesses uh, as best they can. Absolutely, Liam. Speaking of that, as a small business owner, you know, have you had to change the way your business is operating to try and meet those costs or to counteract them or take them on board? Have you had to change uh, any of the, the processes that you take? I mean, we, I would imagine all small businesses do our due diligence around where we can alleviate costs, uh, like incurring costs that's unnecessary so whether that's taking larger bulk feed you know larger quantities at a time if that's able to give us a discount if we're able to bundle our freight or our transporters eggs you know into one one shipment rather than multiple shipments then obviously there's you know places that you can and i would imagine that all businesses have similar things uh, in their businesses that they do to try and do that. So any good business with good governance is looking for those opportunities to essentially save themselves costs, yeah. And Liam, at the moment, with these prices rising, are they continuing to rise? Is it stabilising? I mean, you mentioned, you know, feed, pellets. Are these ex- prices expected to continue rising? How sustainable is that for the business? Well, I mean, it's really not something that's necessarily in our control. There's been a various number of there's been a various number of things that have contributed to increased costs in seed. We have a, a multi seeded pellet that we get from Lauki Mills that's made for us. You know, within that the different grains are affect uh, cost, you know, different amounts that fluctuate 
weekly, and that's driven by supply and demand uh, within Australia, and then you know even you know more externally things like the war in Ukraine that had a big impact on on grain prices as well. So with regards to whether it increases or decreases, I mean that's really a much more a much larger global question. And, uh, and then even a, just a domestic question. So a lot of that has to do here in Australia with the weather that we've had. Um, we've had floods. Um, you know, the year before we had fires, and that has, that's affected um, a lot of this grain production and, and the farmers out there suffering mm. with those those issues. So yeah, we just we just have to sort of roll with that. Is it affecting what's hitting the shelf? I mean, I go into my local supermarket and it seems like, you know, the the wider range of eggs available isn't as big as what it normally would be. There's less cartons of eggs. You can't really find the the sort of bigger than a dozen multi-packs of eggs at the moment. Given these increases, I mean, are you having to put out less or why are we seeing, you know, these types of shortages? I can only, you know, inform you as much as you probably, you know, have already heard through the other media outlets about there being a national egg shortage. We have at at times struggled to source our new hens. So there's a, you know, sort of a flow-on effect of, of that uh, with us to be able to produce as many eggs as we, you know, we'd like to be able to produce. With regards to the number of eggs on shelves, I could only hazard a guess that perhaps we're seeing some of the smaller producers not be able to keep up with the rising costs and the challenges of being an egg producer or a farmer, for that matter. Perhaps also you're seeing the drive to reduce or to not have caged eggs on the shelves in the near future, which I completely agree with. But perhaps that's, that's where you're seeing a reduction of, I guess, the range of eggs you're seeing on the shelf. Yeah, Liam, definitely reading articles from the UK, seeing that, you know, there are egg purchasing limits now in place in supermarkets and the British Free Range Egg Producers Association is saying that, you know, producers have been hit with huge price hikes in production costs, similar to what's being experienced here in Australia. And they're reporting that it's meant that many egg farmers have had no choice but to actually cease production, which is a huge concern as well. Given that you sell on your eggs and are a retail producer for, you know, supermarket chains and the sort of smaller businesses, you know, cafes, restaurants, is there a demand from cafes and restaurants as well still or are they starting to sort of swap out those menu items and go for cheaper alternatives? Very fortunate. We've got a, a very lovely, loyal customer base and we haven't seen any of that, you know, I guess directly. I think if you produce a good product and mm. people um, are understand and educated around the benefits of the, the way you're producing your product, then people are loyal to your product uh, and we're very grateful for that. That was Liam Brokenshaw. He's the owner and egg producer for the Splendid Egg based in Mount Gambia, speaking with Beck Chave. We had one text come through and uh, just saying that breakfast in general is so expensive at the moment. Brunch uh, can get to anywhere up to $40 in Adelaide and sometimes even more. And they've said uh, they'd rather save money and cook at home. That was from Deanna from Port Pirie. Thank you very much for uh, for texting that through. That's all we have got time for on the, uh, the show today. You can now uh, find more stories uh, online from right across the country. Uh, just go to abc.net.au slash rural and uh, you can keep up to date with all the latest news. And you can also go back and have a listen to the podcast as well where you find all your favourite podcasts. I'm Brooke Neindorf. Thanks very much for your company. Have a good rest of your Monday.
keep up to date with ABC Radio. Local stories. Local news. Local programs. On your radio, on your mobile and online 24-7. Get all the latest with ABC Radio. Anywhere, anytime. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.